Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. Today we are here to talk to Professor Erin Pettigrew, who is an associate professor of history and Arab Crossroads Studies at New York University at Abu Dhabi. She's a historian of Africa, specializing in West Africa, African colonial and post-colonial history with a focus on Muslim societies. Her research has focused on the cultural history of Islam, slavery, race, gender, and nation in what she calls the Saharan West, which we will talk about in this uh, interview, which is what's primarily today the Islamic Republic of Mauritania. Today's book to invoke the invisible and the Sahara, Islam, Spiritual Mediation and Social Change, published recently by Cambridge University Press this year in African Studies series. In this innovative new history, Erin Pettigrew utilizes invisible forces and entities, esoteric knowledge and spirits to show how these forms of knowledge and unseen forces have shaped social structures, religious norms, and political power in the Saharan West. Situating this ethnographic history in what became La La Mauritanie under French colonial rule and later the Islamic Republic of Mauritania, Pettigrew traces the changing roles of Muslim spiritual mediators and their Islamic esoteric sciences, known locally as Lahjab, over the long-term history of the region. By exploring the impact of the immaterial in the material world and demonstrating the importance of Islamic esoteric sciences in Saharan societies, she illuminates people's enduring reliance upon these sciences in their daily lives and argues for a new approach to historical research that takes the immaterial seriously. Welcome, Erin, to New Books in, the Indi- uh, in African Studies, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book. Thank you, Ahmed, for your interest in the book, and then especially for giving me the opportunity to talk about it at length. You're welcome. It has been a pleasure to uh, encounter and enjoy your book, and I would like to share it with the audience. But first, we would like to know about the author. So can you start us off by saying a few words about yourself, that is, where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested uh, in your field of study, and if you would like to mention any mentors. Sure. Um, I do think my book and my future projects really reflect both my academic training and my specific personal trajectory um, in that um, I think I grew up in sort of the American Mauritania. And <laughs> I grew up in in um, the United States in South Dakota, which is a state not very many people know about. And like Mauritania, not very many people can identify on a map. Um, also, like Mauritania has very few people living in it and um, is a place that if people know about it, uh, is imagined to be one of cowboys and sort of uh, the Wild West and and the Great American Plains. Um, and I, 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 you know, I often joke that it's sort of like the camel herders of Mauritania. Um, but I, I then I went to undergraduate at a women's college in Virginia where I studied French language and literature. And there I um, wrote a thesis on the politics of language in post-colonial Algeria. 
um, you know, very much from a distance, very, very much armchair sort of history, um, but was really introduced to those politics through the literature of the Algerian writer Asia Jabbar and had considered trying to um, begin a, a doctorate with her when she was still alive and working at, at NYU. Um, but at the time, I have to say, just felt really burnt out by undergrad and the intense work that my thesis had been. And I ended up um, deciding, and three weeks after graduation, joining um, the Peace Corps, the United States Peace Corps, um, which still exists, but was founded um, under the American president, John F. Kennedy, um, as, um, and there's a lot to be criticized about the Peace Corps, but it was started as an initial kind of development agency, both within and kind of outside the American government in that its volunteers would go for two years to a country, ideally at the invitation, of course, of the country, um, but to work at a very grassroots level um, as teachers, as healthcare workers, as agricultural uh, workers. Um, and I always had considered the Peace Corps because my mother did it in the 1960s in Malaysia. Um, and it just seemed at the time um, a good option for me because I didn't see other possibilities for me at that point to go to a part of the world I wouldn't have gone to otherwise to um, work and live in very different conditions than I knew. And of course, I had lots of grand ideas about helping uh, the people that I would be encountering. And so it was in, in applying for the Peace Corps that I was placed in the Islamic Republic of Mauritania. Um, and I went there again, three weeks after I graduated from undergrad um, to serve as a middle school and high school teacher in um, a town that for those that know about the history of Islam in West Africa might recognize a town called Shangeti, which was a very important uh, town on the caravan trade in the Sahara. And so I lived in Shingeti for two years as a high school English teacher. Um, and while I was there, really not only fell in love with the country and its people, but decided I wanted to somehow keep coming back. Um, but I wasn't sure how. And having worked for the Peace Corps and having seen the work of all kinds of NGOs there felt very critical of development work in West Africa. And so I decided to get a master's in African studies because I knew I wanted to better understand, you know, the context in which I was living. And I knew again that I wanted to keep coming back, but I didn't know in what capacity. So I ended up getting a master's in African studies at University of California in Los Angeles, where I um, had wonderful mentors, Gilan Leiden, who, um, you know, is really one of the primary historians of the Sahara, um, Andrew Apter, who's an anthropologist of Nigeria. And there, I really felt like I was doing something really exciting with a really great cohort of master's students and, um, you know, PhD students in history, who I think really felt that we were doing something exciting and meaningful um, by studying Africa. Um, and then I um, decided to 
pursue my PhD in education, I'm sorry, my PhD in history, rather. Um, and I moved to Stanford University, where I studied primarily with Richard Roberts and Sean Henretta, uh, historians of Africa, and also Joel Bainan, um, a historian of the Middle East there. Um, and it was, you know, during my PhD that I decided then um, to, to pursue the, the, the research that then became my book. Thank you for sharing uh, your journey to the book. Now let's talk about the book and its chapters. The book is divided in three parts consisting of six substantial chapters and an epilogue. And you start the book with this uh, evocative uh, quotation by the Libyan novelist, Ibrahim Al-Khoni. Uh, the desert has been the home of saints and prophets because it is the barzakh between freedom and existence between death and life. Uh, so starting the book with this uh, quotation, uh, I would like us first to be introduced to a, a region that you have uh, coined as the Saharan West, uh, uh, a region sometimes described, as you say in the book, uh, a hyphen between Africa or Africa North and South of the Sahara. So how would you situate this region historically and and in what way you would think of it as a hyphen between these two regions? Thank you. I mean, I, so I would want to say first, um, this idea of a hyphen, and I, you know, I do indicate that in the book, that is also a very loaded term because it was really how the very first president of Mauritania, Mokhtar Dada, uh organized his own politics for for what became the Islamic Republic of Mauritania because he um he was aware that he was playing politically um you know a very very sensitive kind of um part in between these two regions that are normally thought of as very separate and divided by the Sahara and i think you know, many people have built on that concept and his use of hyphen to also, um, you know, claim that the Sahara should not be one glossed over and should not be thought of as this clear dividing line between two other regions, but should be thought of rather as a region in its own right. And one, and, and I think Elan Leiden has especially highlighted this, but a place where many things are also happening. Um, and so for me, I think I've really struggled with how to refer to what is now Mauritania, but of course only recently had national borders, um, and to recognize that there is, you know, over time an immense fluidity in this region and mobility, um, but how to be specific about the geography and, and the context I'm studying. And so that's why I ended up choosing this term Saharan West. Um, because I don't see myself as just studying the Southern Sahara. Um, I don't want to claim to be looking at the entire Sahara. Um, and so for me, that Saharan West seemed to most accurately describe over the long journey, this region that I want to be looking at. Um, and I, I also just wanted to say that, you know, my use of Al-Khoni and his term of Al-Barzakh, that's something, of course, that through the introduction, I especially return to. But it's also an example of where teaching has informed my research, because I teach a course specifically on the desert at New York University, Abu Dhabi, and um, assign Al-Khoni's literature to my students. And so it's in preparing um, discussions for them that I was able to uh, be introduced more to him and his own work and then his use of Barzakh. 
um, which of course then resonates, as I say in the book, with what other anthropologists have argued on a methodological and the theoretical level for how one should um, inhabit a, an in-between space as a as an as an anthropologist, me as an ethnographic historian, um, but also. Uh, in the Saharan West, the way that inhabitants themselves have thought about this region, which again is this kind of hyphen in between two other places. Right, and and foregrounding this region as a as a region in its own right, we think of the desert not as a barrier, as the historians of the Sahara have demonstrated, but almost like an ocean that connects uh, different parts of the Sahel, the West Africa region, North Africa, and between different ethnic groups and languages and faiths coming together, sharing um, the Sahara. And the book walk us through uh, through that entanglement uh, unfolding in these chapters. But first, let's talk about the, let's say the, th the framework of the book, which is invoking the invisible. What are we talking about when we are talking about the invisible? In, in your introduction, you define the invisible. So can you shed more light about what you call Saharan ontology of the invisible? What does this concept entail? And how does it shape the book's exploration of Islam and spiritual mediation in the Sahara? Great, thank you for that question. Um, so for me, the invisible means two things. The first is I think what you are getting at specifically is use of the Saharan Islamic culture meaning that I'm I'm looking at something that locally, I'm using the umbrella term, is called lehjab, um, which I translate as the Islamic esoteric sciences, recognizing that um, the use of Islamic, for example, could be contested and that other scholars have used terms like occult sciences or other uh, translations of Islamic expressions or Arabic expression, sorry, like Ulum um, you know, the esoteric sciences, the inner sciences, um, sciences of the unseen, for example. Um, but I have specifically chosen Islamic esoteric sciences following Lewis Brenner, um, who, who argues that um, one can use that term when talking about um, knowledge that is learned, accessed, and practiced by Muslims as part of their own spiritual study and service to fellow Muslims. Um, and I do that also because the people with whom I work over time have largely understood these sciences, these esoteric sciences, to be a part of uh, Islamic knowledge. But what those sciences are concretely um, are uh, they're a set of of practices and a, and as I say a systematic form of knowledge that's used to generally protect people, heal people, um, and sometimes to harm. But very specific examples, and I think the most um, frequent examples that I found are um, when people are ill they would seek out these sciences to heal them. Um, specifically women uh, rely a lot on these sciences when it comes to issues of um, fertility, trying to find husbands, trying to maintain their husband's loyalty um, once that they are married. Um, men also, you know, try to rely on them um, for 
virility and their own fertility, but also um, over time, you know, for protection in battle, um, for help with their agricultural yields. Um, and again, people can also uh, evoke these sciences to punish and harm others. Um, they're specifically, um, I'm considering them specifically invisible because these sciences rely on spirits, on forces, on beings that are not normally understood to be seen, um, to be visible to the naked eye, except in extraordinary circumstances. And they're often kept um, invisible by the sense of secrecy around them. And that only the, the, the idea and the claim that only those who are initiated into this knowledge can access it. Um, so that's what I mean by the invisible here is these Islamic esoteric sciences that are generally not understood to be openly accessible to the majority of people living in this region. Um, but I also use that word because I, until fairly recently anyway, this kind of phenomena, events involving um, invisible spirits, involving um, locally what would be called jinn, um, have often been ignored by uh, researchers on the region as superstition, as not relevant, as silly, backward uh, kind of stories, as something that didn't merit study. And so my other claim is just that these kinds of events the people that are involved have been made invisible in the stories that we tell. Right. Um, and then you move on in the introduction to talk about historicizing uh, the invisible, and uh, you've called it an ethnographic history. And I've been thinking about how to situate your book in the recent search uh, in West African, uh, let's say, engagement with the invisible. And I'm thinking of publications by... Uh, uh, Ogunaike, uh, Deep Knowledge, Ways of Knowing in Sufism and Ifa, or um, the more recent Sorcery or Science, uh, Contesting Knowledge uh, by Ariella Marcusels. Um, so different historians have taken on the question of the invisible, mostly studying it by studying uh, Sufi scholars and traditions uh, in West Africa and North Africa. What sets your project apart from the previous uh previous scholarship on this question? Well, right. I mean, I, the the two works you just cited are, you know, are, are wonderful new um, research on, on the topic. They are primarily, as you said, situated within a, a te textual tradition. And, um, you know, I think that what I, when I was talking about my own personal academic and, um, you know, experiential trajectory, I think what has been very important to me personally is to maintain um, to maintain a connection to contemporary Mauritania. And so my project um, is not situated in time in the same way that the two previous uh, books that you mentioned are, um, but you know really covers a very long durée up to uh, basically 2022 in what is now Mauritania. And so while I do rely on textual materials, both produced locally in Arabic by uh, Muslim scholars um, and, you know, of course, colonial archives, um, I also am very much relying on interviews, participant observation, um, 
social media. Um, and I'm I what I what I'm trying to do then is to really get at the social meanings, the cultural meanings behind these practices and um, to really understand how people today in Mauritania assign meanings to events and practices related to the invisible. Um, and I really felt like I could really only do that through the ethnographic side of what I do. I mean, I have to say, I also just really enjoy ethnographic work. I really enjoy talking to people. I enjoy <laughs> sitting and observing when I'm allowed to do so. Um, and so it's really important to me that I be able to do that kind of methodological work. And I think it's incredibly um, necessary to, without obviously projecting ethnographically back um, in an inappropriate way, but to be able to triangulate what people tell me today with, um, you know, with textual sources um, in the past, I think I'm able to just hopefully provide a, a, a wider sort of context that situates these texts um, and these debates um, you know, in a specific place and time. Yes, and, and drawing on ethnographic uh methodologies and textual methodologies you uh you are on the look for the invisible right and thinking about the question of uh, agency while reading uh, let's say your field notes or reading uh, colonial uh, officers uh, observations of the actors you're writing about so how did you draw on these different methodologies and trying to locate and manifest and, and let's say actualize the invisible for your readers? Sorry, Ahmed, you said, how did I draw on these different methodologies? Yes, by drawing on these different methodologies, being ethnographic and textual and trying to understand the history of the invisible in the Sahara, uh, how did you tackle the question of agency and how to represent agency of the invisible uh, while narrating this long Jura history? Well, th this is what I think, um, you know, was the biggest barrier for me and the, the, the biggest sort of conundrum for me when I was considering how to revise my dissertation and make it a book. <laughs> um, and I think that I was lucky enough that between the time that I finished my dissertation in 2014, and the time I began revisions a couple of years later, um, really significant new work, um, especially from um, intellectual history, looking at the history in the pre-modern Mediterranean world of these sciences of letterism and geomancy, the you know esoteric sciences or occult sciences had um, had been published. And so suddenly I was able to really pull from you know, just an incredible amount of production uh, from from scholars who were looking at those histories and were really wanting to make the claim, one, that these um, esoteric sciences were not a kind of primitive superstition, um, but were really a part of how urban elite and a scholarly elite, um, you know, both thought about uh, worship and thought about Islamic knowledge, but also um, considered how to maintain power. So that that material came out um, during my revision period, which was incredibly helpful. Um, and you know, I, so that I was able to really rely on scholars who have a much, I would say, better um, grasp of 
um, of textual practice than, than I was necessarily trained in. And I was able to combine that then with my real training in, in social and cultural history that I received, um, which really, again, depended on my ethnographic uh, methodology. Um, and I, I, I do think, you know, anthropologists, and I, I say this in the introduction, have long argued and have long considered how to incorporate, um, you know, as some historians have recently said, the unbelieved in their work. Um, but I think historians have especially struggled with how to do so because we have this uh, attachment <laughs> to evidence and it's hard when the evidence is immaterial um, to argue you know, argue, argue for its inclusion. And so um, I was really trying to uh, marry, I guess, those two, those two approaches um, and to say, well, how can we combine them? How can I, as a historian, say we need to pay attention to what's happening in the spirit world? We need to be what's happening with claims about magic. Um, and if we don't, we're missing a large chunk of um, our understanding of, of how, how the people that we're studying understand and understood their worlds. Um, yeah, I don't, I feel like I'm, I'm maybe perhaps leaving out a second part of your question. No, that, that makes totally uh, perfect sense. The thing is, as historians, we write about people who lived in a world which uh, was enchanted and was inhabited by all of these agent of forces around them. Yet when, you know, as you said, the the unbelieved historians come to write their histories, um, they are the secularized, they are the disenchanted, and they are the materialistic and reading, uh, you know, the, the narratives of the past. So they erase all of that because they don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to explain it away. And it just doesn't, you know, fit in their worldview and that's really the conundrum that uh, we face in writing about um, the invisible in the past and I really found your introduction to be uh, a very useful manifesto on how to conduct such research and write such ontological histories that you call by bringing from you know these different sources and um, as a, as a historian uh, Leiden said reading these archives in their natural habitat with your interlocutors. So that was very um, productive to think with. So thank you for writing such a inter- very useful introduction, which I really uh, would ask the graduate students to pay attention to and thinking about these questions. Um, and moving to talk about the, the chapters of the book, I would like the listeners to be acquainted with, let's uh, say the major three groups that the book is uh, centering the the Hassaniya, the Zwaya, and the uh, Alginar. If you can briefly introduce them before we talk about um, these groups and the and the questions surrounding them. Sure, and you know I really struggled with how to organize the book book in that I think it's really important to understand the social structure, understanding that it's more fluid and dynamic than rigid over time, um, but so much about the you know so much on um, about the, the the history of the region depends on a very basic understanding of this social structure, which is articulated 
primarily, um, you know, you mentioned the Hassan and the Zwaya, um, but through a system of um, social hierarchy that is not specific to the Saharan West or what is now Mauritania, but is perhaps um, specific broadly to West Africa, where you have people who are um, born and understood to be born into specific kinds of occupations that are ranked hierarchically. And at the top um, in the in the Saharan West are the Hassan and the Zwaya. Um, and the Hassan historically, at least uh, probably since the, the, the 15th century, um, were understood to be uh, the, those that uh, that held temporal power through their military might. Um, and the, the Zwaya were understood to be those of scholarly lineage. Um, and below them, then, you would have people who were considered tributary. So they might be camel herders, fishermen, uh, uh, iron workers, uh, artisanal workers. Um, and then at the very bottom of this social hierarchy were those that were considered enslaved. Um, again, of course, this is more fluid over time, but that is broadly the kind of ranking um, that that defined who had access to power, what kind of power, um, and to Islamic knowledge. Um, and the Ahl Ganar, who you mentioned, I see as outside of this whole structure. Um, they're a very small confederation of families that are today situated right along the Senegal River. Um, most of them live on what is now the Mauritanian side. Some live south in Senegal. Um, but my claim about the Ahel Ganar is that they have worked over many centuries um, to define themselves as separate and as despite their uh, skin color, which locally would define them as black um, and not Arab, um, they have sought to claim and they have successfully claimed uh, descent from the Prophet Muhammad. And so they claim status as Shurufa, um, which also explains then their privileged access to Islamic knowledge, despite uh, despite what are probable origins in enslavement um, and despite what most people in the region would see as a, a skin color that would prevent them from having the kind of access to Islamic knowledge that they have. Thank you for that introduction. Now we have uh, a background about the main actors of the book. Let's move now to talking about the first part, knowledge and authority in pre-colonial contexts. Chapter one, principles of provenance, origins, debates, and social structures of Lahjab and the Saharan West. I would like to ask you, how did the amulet uh, become central to Zwaya religious experts? And how did they use writing to create protective and punitive formulae, legal opinions, and, and directive of their uh, communities? More specifically, how did the esoteric sciences play a vital role, possibly as a weapon for Zwaya authorities and their interactions with the militarily powerful Hassan? Well, so, you know, what I say, and this is really um, thanks to uh, two other scholars, Butch Ware and Zachary Wright, who have done much more work on this um, text, but the earliest textual evidence that we seem to have in the region of the Islamic esoteric sciences, at least today, um, comes from the 15th century. And um, not 
not only is it probably one of the earliest texts that has persisted, but it is very heavily focused on uh, the Islamic esoteric sciences, how to use it them for illnesses, for pregnancy, for misfortune. Um, and uh, was written by Mohammed al-Kabari, uh, who, uh, who lived and was a significant scholar in what is today uh, the Mali. Um, but we know then that at least from that time, um, you know, uh, local scholars were were elaborating on these sciences. And we know that roughly 50 years later, um, there was also someone from the region who wrote to the Egyptian scholar El Siyuti, also writing about the presence of amulets and uh wanting El Siyuti to criticize the use of these amulets and um, the fact that uh, specialists and, and people who made these amulets were uh, benefiting materially from their production. El Siyuti is actually in the end rather permissive um, as long as what is contained in the amulets depends on the Quran, he says. Um, but I just want to say that from very early on, it's clear that there were specialists in these sciences and that letter to El Siyuti also seems to uh, provide evidence that at least at the very, very end of the 15th century, the, this hi social hierarchy that I laid out for you also existed. Um, and so um, we know at that point that there were people who were specialists in Islamic knowledge. We know that they were um, invested in the production of these amulets. But it really seems to be, and that's the claim of that first chapter, that it's with a um, regional war called Shurbuba, um, which is generally understood to have taken place in the second half of the 17th century, ending around 1677, um, that this um, kind of... Uh, division in authority between the military temporal and the scholarly juridical seems to have really come to fruition. And much of it seems to have been about claims about who could uh, who could manipulate the invisible world. In the end, the Zwaya, who are the ones that, that make this claim, um, they lose the war militarily, but the claim locally is that it's at that point that they then turn to um, really monopolizing uh, Islamic knowledge, Islamic juridical knowledge, and uh, knowledge of the invisible worlds as their primary defense weapon, while the Zwaya at that, or sorry, the Hassan at that point um, claim the more powerful and more important, um, in many ways, political temporal authority. Um, so when it comes to timing, it seems to really be that at least in the Saharan West, at the end of the 17th century, uh, this is a time when the Zwaya very clearly claim that as their realm of expertise and their source of um, of power that they're going to use to protect their interests of their communities. And, you know, they're able to do so because they're the ones that are uh, literate, <laughs> that are studying the Quran, um, and that are ex you know, ex exercising the kind of juridical um, knowledge that's needed to defend their use of these sciences. Yes, thank you for that uh, historical background, which I really appreciate about the book as well, that it has historical depth. 
combined with ethnographic rigor, something you don't really find usually in a lot of, uh, let's say, studies of uh, the esoteric or magic in, in African history. Um, so I really appreciated that. Uh, and more about the history of the region in the 18th and the 19th century in chapter two, local wisdom contestations over Lehja. Uh, the chapter tackles how the esoteric sciences and Sufism uh, influenced the religious landscape in southwestern Sahara during this period. Uh, and by drawing on the cases of scholars like Sidi Abdulillah, Wild al Hajib, Ibrahim, and Al Mukhtar, Wild Buna, how would you say that we can navigate this history and balance between critiquing esoteric practices and the growing influence of Sufi affiliations in a region dominated? by uh, the Hassan and Zwaya. Right. So, I mean, my my claim in, uh, you know, in this chapter is that at least locally in contemporary Mauritania, um, the, the, there are two nodes of Muslim political and religious authority um, that are really, um, I guess I would say, underlined by a local expression, which is al-hikma al-kuntiyatun al-futiyatun. So hikma or the um, you know, Islamic esoteric sciences are um, either related to the Kunta Confederation or the Futa, which is a broader region of um, of Pular speaking or Fulbe speaking uh, people. But that these two nodes are really understood to also um, be illustrative or be connected to two different Sufi paths, the Qadriya and the Tijaniya, which today are. I would say the most important in the Saharan West. Um, so my argument here is that um, the the Kunta and the Futa were able to claim access and control over these spiritual forces, um, definitely, you know, over time, but also during a time, as you were indicating, of great contestation of the place of these sciences within Islam. And the, the chapter sort of moves back back and forth between the Sahara, between Fulbe regions along uh, the Senegal River, and even a little in Nigeria, and in the Futa Jalon, which is in today's Guinea, um, and the Gulf and Egypt, because there this is a time where we know that there was um, an immense amount of mobility between these regions, especially of scholars from West Africa and the Sahara moving to uh, Cairo, and then also to the um, the Arabian Gulf, um, and that there seems to be, um, you know, much, much knowledge obviously is moving back and forth between these regions, but it's a time when there is heightened contestation. Um, and, you know, many people point to Mohammed Abdul Wahab um, in what is now Saudi Arabia at the time, who who was in, you know, very much seen as arguing for um, a rejection of any kind of spiritual mediation, spiritual intercession, any kind of um, reliance on anything but the Quran. Um, but I definitely try to argue that we are not really sure of the extent of his specific teachings at this period, but that we know that there were other local iterations, other local uh, critiques of these practices. But those critiques are not, the, the critics are not always, um, they're not always complete detractors of the sciences. And we see how they are, and you know, you gave the example of Al-Haj Ibrahim, um, someone who can be critical of some practice 
practices that he sees as illicit, while we know that he also learned, promoted, and practiced others. Um, and so, um, you know, I look at poems that he wrote, for example, where he definitely condemns some practices, and yet we also have examples of him having learned um, other practices that are seen, you know, by others as, as condemnable. Um, so, yes, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this local criticism, especially in the 19th century, and the kind of reformist discourse at the time in that context and the ways that the Kunta uh, argue against some of that uh, critique um, and um, also the limits of those critiques themselves when, because of the social structures we've talked about, the scholars themselves did not have the military capabilities or the political power um, to really uh, um, enforce some of their critiques. Right. And and this critique uh, continues into the colonial period, as we find in chapter of part two, rupture, uh, consonance, and innovation in colonial and post-colonial Mauritania. In chapter three, colonial logics of Islam managing the threat of hijab. Uh, we think about how, how the French colonial views of religion, magic, and enlightenment uh, impacted their understanding and handling of hijab in the Sahara during the early 20th century. Um, so in your reading, how did these perceptions uh, affect the interactions with uh, local populations and their copying strategies in response to socioeconomic strains linked to colonization in the region? Well, I mean, you know, I think unsurprisingly, the, the French colonial administrators did really the huge majority of them completely dismissed any of these events that or claims about the existence of uh spirits of um you know esoteric practices um and you know they not only dismissed them but they saw them as a sign of west african and saharans backwardness and primitiveness and so one of my claims is that you know they specifically that specifically fed into their justification of the civilizing mission that they needed to bring civilization to uh, these superstitious, um, uh, you know, West Africans. Um, but at the same time, even if they, the French were dismissive of these practices, they also really come to understand that they're very central to the ways that power is constructed in the region. And so they become really concerned about, um, about Muslim uh, figures um, who they think of as charlatans, but, uh, you know, scholars who circulate around West Africa um, selling their skills in the Islamic esoteric sciences, um, but they see these esoteric sciences as a sort of entry point for West Africans to Islam. And they're really worried about that because they're worried about this as being a way that West Africans can then be exposed to a kind of political Islam that can make them resistant to French colonization. And so it's paradoxical in that they dismiss these beliefs, and yet they're very concerned about the people that purvey, that that spread them. Um, and they, they, they put in place progressively politics to limit the mobility of, uh, you know, these Muslim experts in the Islamic, Islamic esoteric sciences. 
Um, they also, and I say this in the chapter, really focus on the materiality of these practices, meaning you know, the the bodies, of course, of these people who are moving around um, as experts in the Islamic esoteric sciences, but also when they can on the private libraries and collections of texts that these experts have. And so there are sort of competing stories about whether or not the French burnt, um, you know, the library of a very prominent colonial resistor, um, and whether they shipped, you know, another library down the Senegal River. I don't know where that library ended up, but seeing it also as um, as a source of opposition to colonization. Reading this chapter actually reminded me of uh, an ethnography I read uh, in a seminar with Professor Becky Schultes uh, called Allah Made Us, Sexual Outlaws in an Islamic African City by Rodolf uh, Godio. I don't know if you've read uh, this book. Um, but I find it remarkable that um, such views and critiques sometimes can be aligned by, uh, let's say, uh, Islamists and colonial uh, of, uh, officials and thinking about the invisible. Um, so that was really remarkable to find it in northern Nigeria, but also in Mauritania. Um, moving to the post-colonial period, uh, and you call it post-colonial transfiguration, contesting lahjab in the era of social media, uh, I would assume most of the listeners are uh, familiar with the 2012 uh, coup d'etat in Mali and the Al-Qaeda uh, and the uh, of, of Islamic Maghreb and Ansar al-Din uh, have imposed their interpretations of, of Islam in, in northern cities like Timbuktu. And the global cries for safeguarding these, uh, let's say, uh, treasures of humanity rather than really focusing on life on, on the ground and what people are going through, which is the case with many of, of these situations. Um, but in taking this historical moment and thinking about the literally like paradoxical, let's say, uh, uh, reactions to what's going on um, coming from these groups and thinking about their actions of destroying Sufi says tombs uh, and conducting trials for practices associated with lahjab. Um, what came out of this moment, uh, as you as you interpret in this chapter, is that we find uh, an attempt to suppress local uh, esoteric practices, but at the same time, we find these practices being, let's say, amplified, amplified and 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 made salient uh, among the local population in Mali and Mauritania. So how do you find this this moment uh, productive in thinking about this contestation around Lahjab? Yeah, I mean, I so right. I mean, I, I I'm thank you for focusing on that specific moment because of course that's when I was conducting um, you know the bulk of my field work um, between 2011, 2010, and 2014. So the the coup in Mali happened in 2012. Um, and so it was really after that that I heard so many Mauritanians drawing these connections as I talked to them to what had happened in Mali. And they themselves did focus on the destruction of the Sufi uh, you know, tombs um, because they they felt very um those that that either sought recourse to or that that practiced the hijab um felt very threatened. They 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 said what was happening in Mali was a sign of um the kinds of critiques that they would um anticipate for their own, you know, their own context. Um 
But you know, one of the, the the major claims of this book is that contestation does not necessarily mean um, a, a, a a decrease in recourse to the esoteric sciences and to the hijab specifically. Um, and you know, there I'm I am trying to argue against um, so much of the European literature, which really is looking at witchcraft as a thing of the past, even though we know. Um, you know, anthropologists of Europe have shown otherwise, but, uh, you know, assuming that criticism means that these practices disappear. Um, and so I, I, I look at specifically television programming in Mauritania in the 2010s and the emergence um, of a, a um, Islamist preacher at the same time um, to show how, at least in the public sphere, um, Mauritanians were talking about, joking about, um, thinking about, and criticizing um, Le Hijab. Um, and I think I begin that chapter specifically with um, a prominent member of the confederation you mentioned, the Ahl Ganar, who really places himself in the public sphere as a defender of la hijab um, and does so very openly and uses that terminology um, in a debate that he had with a more conservative uh, Mauritanian religious scholar about whether or not la hijab is permitted within Islam. Um, and I then move on to look at um, the ways that uh, specifically comedy sketches, but also debate talk shows um, discuss and portray la hijab. Um, and I think very much relying on um, images that are very familiar to Mauritanians to do so. Um, and at the same time, you know, I, I look at this um, young uh, Mauritanian Islamist preacher who had spent time specifically in Kuwait and Saudi Arabia before returning to Mauritania and introducing a new form of interacting with invisible spirits, which he calls al-ruqya. Um, and he, it's a kind of um, spirit exorcism that he operates that Mauritanians, when I would talk to them, said was imported from outside and was very new to Mauritania. Although I think in neighboring uh, Morocco, it's much more common. Um, but he was claiming that that was illicit form of interacting with spirits. And yet he was largely mocked by most Mauritanians. And I sort of go through a series of uh, <laughs> confrontations and interactions he had with the Mauritanian state, um, running as a uh, candidate in the Mauritanian um, elections, but also eventually being jailed during COVID for trying to push um, uh, uh, a sort of thistle pill that would, he said, would would claim or would sorry would prevent people from getting COVID, and the Mauritanian state steps in and imprisons him, and you know decides that that is not a legitimate uh, <laughs> solution to to the pandemic. Um, but what I you know what I say in the end is he's out of jail now. He has set up another center. Um, where he's very much claiming to be able to um, deal with so many of the both spiritual and material issues that people are still struggling with. Um, so it doesn't seem, you know, that that as much as he is critical of la hijab and he's not specifically claiming to practice la hijab, he's he's claiming to practice something else. Um, he, you know, his own 
um, sort of liminal state um, hasn't prevented him from continuing his own business. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you intended to organize the book, uh, let's say, spatially by thinking about from the north to the south, but part three, move us further to the south, if you would think about it, the way you've narrated the history throughout the chapters, um, closer to Senegal now, articulating race, gender, and social difference through the esoteric sciences. In chapter five, desert panic, blood-sucking accusations, and the terror of social change. First of all, I'm fascinated by the belief in cell. I don't know how you say it right, cell, you pronounce it? Cell or cellella. Mm -hmm. All right. So how did the belief in cell and accusations of blood-sucking impact social relationships and desert oasis communities, uh, particularly between different ethnic uh, and social groups in the Saharan West? And I'm thinking here about accusations of cell uh, and it, how it intersects with notions of race, so, uh, social status, and religious uh, adherence, uh, and how were these accusations mobilized by powerful elites to preserve the traditional social order and exclude certain individuals or groups, such as uh, the, the enslaved uh, and the manumitted uh, Haratin and Znaga? Well, so my project really began with this blood sucking with Sel. Um, and it was because I was in the colonial archives in Dakar in Senegal, where I found a folder that mentioned um, three enslaved people being accused of blood sucking by their owners and eventually they were killed and the french colonial officials are trying to decide what to do with the with those with the murderers um and this is exactly where where we see the kind of um paradox in colonial thinking where they're saying, well, we don't believe these accusations of blood sucking. So the people that killed these enslaved people are obviously guilty, but um, they killed enslaved people. So, you know, does it really matter in the end? Um, these enslaved people do not have families who are going to come and demand justice. And the the of course, the people that owned these enslaved people were from a very powerful, uh, you know, a tribe that the colonial officials do not want to upset. Um, and it was there that I thought, well, gosh, I mean, you know, my experience in the Peace Corps, I had lived over two years in Mauritania and had never heard discussion of Selala, of blood sucking. Um, and so when I started talking about this and asking about it in Mauritania after I had been in the Senegalese archives, um, I saw immediately everyone lit up um, wanting to talk about this topic. There had been a couple of important articles written by uh, the anthropologist Benjamin Aklok and the historian Anne McDougall on uh, cell, but I really felt like there was more that could be said and specifically that the timeline could be pushed back, um, back further earlier and forward. Um, and so that's what I attempt to do in this chapter, which I have to say is still situated in what for Mauritanians would be Northern Mauritania primarily. Um, and that's important because cell historically emerges where where there are people of enslaved status who, by and large, would be considered to be of a darker skin color, that's a huge generalization, but who would be brought into desert oasis communities to work. 
And I have to say that people of low um, occupational status who might be considered iron workers or artisans are also often accused of silala, at least um, anecdotally, when you talk with people, that's what they tell you. I have to say that I just was never able to get um, clear evidence and stories about such accusa accusations outside of um, the question of enslavement and race. Um, and of course, it also tends to be women who are accused of Silala, although not only. Um, so again, we know from the 15th century, from that same letter to El Suyuti, that people of enslaved status somewhere in the Sahara were understood to be able to make other people fall ill simply by looking at them or by touching them. And so that that's the earliest evidence that I know about that, that this idea of blood sucking from a distance or through one's look existed and was connected to people who were understood to be enslaved. Um, and then from the 15th century on, there's just increasing evidence, especially in fatawa that are written to the Kunta specifically, but also Hajj Ibrahim brings it up, um, asking about this phenomenon. And El Kunta, for example, responds, um, talking about who is known to do it, you know, if it's a form of sorcery. He's also asked if it's connected to miscarriages, because there seems to be, at least from this fatawa, what we can, or this fatwa, which we can see, is that um, the idea of a fetus being lost is also understood to be related to the same kind of phenomenon of sucking out vital life forces from someone. And so I think this phenomenon of blood sucking can also tell us a lot about reproduction and ideas about uh, health and pregnancy, too. Um, but looking long term at these. Um, texts from the 15th really to the 20th century, bloodsucking silala seems to be a very widespread phenomenon in the Sahara, primarily uh, used as an accusation against enslaved people, and again, mostly enslaved women. And so that's when I'm trying to explain that tendency of why women of enslaved status were specifically accused of this. And it really seems to be um, that there are, you know, concerns about sexual relationships with uh, with male owners, um, concerns about what that means for kinship and inheritance, jealousy, you know, broadly fears of social reproduction, and um, and when uh, the French outlaw uh, in slavery at the very beginning of the 20th century, and then going forward, is that law is specifically enforced, there seems to be a lot of concern about what that might mean, the end of slavery, for those uh, in power. And so accusing people of bloodsucking seems to be a way to maintain their marginal status and um, to make sure that they don't end up uh, being able to access uh, you know, power and freedom. I would love to read um, an entire monograph just on chapter five, to be honest. It's such a fascinating and very rich um, history to think through these relationships. And uh, I haven't came across such a case in, in the Western Indian Ocean, but what I found, accusations of cannibalism, hmm. using cannibalism as a way to identify uh, sorcerers. 
um, but I haven't came uh, across uh, Slada as a practice, so it's, it's really new to me and it's fascinating. Um, we, we mentioned earlier Ahal Ginnar, and you've mentioned that they um, have laid claims to being descendants of the Prophet Muhammad. And in chapter six, you explore this in genealogical claims to the past and the transmission of Lihjab. So how did they construct and assert their uh, identity as black descendants of the Prophet Muhammad? And um, how did their narratives of common ancestry as well and links to territory shape their cultural and, and social uh, position despite being non-Arab you know, Arabic speakers, Mauritanians uh, in, in a region which is dominated by Hassaniya-speaking Arabs? Well, you know, what I say in the epilogue, I don't mean to jump forward, but I, you know, I, I came to this topic thinking that I would study the most prominent uh, hijab at the time, who was someone who was Arabic speaking, who through his father was considered uh, Bivan or, you know, white Arab. Um and who everyone talked about at the time. He has since passed away. Um, but it became very clear to me that because he was so prominent, he was, in, at least for me um, and the time I was willing to spend, um, inaccessible. And going to his community did help me understand an enormous amount about what Ben Suarez calls the, the prayer economy. Um, you know, of La Hijab, but I decided then to turn toward the Ahl Ginar, who, um, you know, I had heard about through other people in Nawakshut primarily, um, because the Ahl Ginar both have a house in Nawakshut from which um, the leader at the time operated, but they also, their primary village is about three hours south of Nawakshut. So in Mauritania, that's not that far. And, um, they seem to be an especially fascinating case. They were one, again, much more accessible to me. Um, the, the leader at the time and his son, who's now the leader, were very welcoming to me. They wanted me to focus on their family history for the reasons that you have just evoked, um, primarily because they, they themselves, again, define themselves as descendants of the prophet. They do speak Arabic. But primarily through their mothers, their, you know, language at home is Wolof, and they maintain really clear ties to Wolof-speaking communities along the Senegal River and further south into Senegal. Um, but they, at least the son, uh, who's now the leader, very clearly wanted to establish that his family, despite their skin color, had contributed to the history of what is now Mauritania from a very early period and specifically had been very involved in the transmission of Islamic knowledge. And so for him, I think that was both a political project um, because he wanted to challenge the dominant state narrative about what was important about Mauritanian history, meaning that it was a primarily uh, Arabic language and, uh, you know, Arab Berber racialized version of uh, what was important and who was important. But of course, you know, I think he specifically um, saw me as a way to promote his family's history um, and hoped probably that his family would benefit materially from that. Um, you know, unfortunately, that second part probably 
isn't going to come to fruition. Um, but that was why I think I, at least I understood why he would want to engage with me. And at the time, he was very involved in trying to establish the family's ancestral home called Tigamaltin, this town three hours south of the capital, um, as a center of Sufi study and Sufi knowledge. And so he would organize conferences about Sufism, and he would invite um, people internationally to come to those conferences. And he and his siblings also traveled and continue to travel internationally. Um, I really think seeking to build those kinds of international connections, hoping that they will be able to sustain life in the village and life for this family. Um, and so my argument really in that chapter, which is also a very long durée chapter, but is that this is not new to this family, that I really want to argue that this family has specifically been um, shifting um, how it presents itself and has systematically been building connections um, in order to promote itself and to build a reputation as experts in the Islamic esoteric sciences, um, you know, for their own livelihood. Um, and so I look I look as as much as I could um, through texts, through oral history and through the ethnographic work um, to see how they've been able to do that, um, which has been, you know, one promoting themselves through marriage um, um, to powerful families um, by playing very important roles as political mediators in the region, um, by providing their esoteric sciences to the Hassan, um, and by, you know, much more recently been building these international connections to Senegal, to Iran, uh, to Qaddafi's Libya to, to really sustain themselves. Right. Thank you for this. Uh, I really enjoyed the last two chapters, and I found it very useful for my own research and thinking about how uh, race and the esoteric sciences can intersect and can be sites of contestations and assertion of uh, different sorts of claims as well. Um, moving to the epilogue, um, what are some of the factors that have contributed to the enduring presence and significance of Lahjab in Mauritania, uh, despite colonialism, social change, modernization? All of these waves don't seem to be uh, vanquishing the invisible, but in fact, maybe finding new, uh, let's say, mediums for the invisible to thrive in? Well, yeah, and I think, you know, I think it's really hard to avoid a kind of functionalist explanation here, um, which I very, very clearly want to avoid. Um, and, you know, I think in the end, there are just um, realities of daily life that Lehajab seems to respond the most effectively to. Um, and so there are plenty of um, challenges that, you know, Mauritanians face on a daily level, be it uh, through work, exams, you know, love, wellness, um, fertility, that um, have not found solutions in, you know, through other means, be they biomedical, educational, financial. Um, and Lehajab persists as you know what it what is an effective way of 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 trying to obtain um and trying to fulfill some of these desires um and i i guess that you know that's my argument at the end that and that also lahijab itself um and its its methods and techniques has been able to shift over time um experts have known how to do so to fit the needs of of its consumers 
Right. And uh, we move to, to, to the end of the book. And as, as much as I would like to keep discussing the book, I'll take another hour <laughs> to further, uh, ask you questions of my own interest. But I hope the readers have uh, gained enough to uh, pique their interest and pick up the book to explore the rich uh, narrative that you provide uh, written really in a a very beautiful prose and the book is also uh, contains a lot of illustrations and maps that are very useful in, in navigating the region. Um, so we move to the last traditional question that we have, which is um, we like to ask the authors what are they working on now or hope to work on in the future if you would like to share. I know the book just been out, um, but if you can share with us um, some of your aspirations. Sure. I mean, I'm happy to because it's also always exciting to move on to other projects after something has emerged out of a dissertation and one has lived with it for far too many years. Um, but I think both of my projects have also come out of one this this project, but also my personal trajectory. Um, I'm currently working and I'm, I'm co-writing an article with an, an anthropologist, Mark Drury, who works on the Western Sahara, but we are beginning a project on a leftist movement in Mauritania called the Kadahin, which were first drawn to my attention actually through my work on Le Hijab, because this leftist Marxist, Leninist, um, and then later Maoist movement um, was very the members of it were very critical of Lahijab and they had specific educational campaigns against it. And so I was I, the first time I heard about them um, was was when I was working on my first project. But I'm now really interested in them. Um, this very short lived moment in Mauritanian history um, and the ways that uh, they were able to uh, maintain their political activity despite you know despite. Uh, government repression, um, and also thinking about the legacies of this movement um, uh, after they after they officially um, sort of uh, disappeared. Um, so Mark Drury and I are working on that now. And the other project I am in the very, very early stages of is on um, a more comparative project looking at the history of the Mauritania, of sorry of the Peace Corps in Africa, um, but I really specifically want to look at the Peace Corps from an African Studies perspective and what it meant for the Africans who were the objects of Peace Corps projects who. Uh, worked in the Peace Corps, who worked with Peace Corps volunteers, uh, African critics of the Peace Corps, to to you know understand what it was like to be on the receiving end um, of this American uh, you know kind of neoliberal project, um, and you know very, very linked to that, I also want to write about the ways that the Peace Corps shaped African studies in the United States because so many former Peace Corps volunteers uh, became academics. Um, and so I, I think of that as a you know really um, essential part of the history of African studies. Sounds amazing. Is there any magic in these projects? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I'll have to, I guess with the Kadahin, you know, their specific um, uh, claims, you know, against it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be fascinating. I look forward to reading uh, your uh, your future projects and hopefully have you again on the podcast. Thank you so much for giving us your time to talk about your beautiful book. 
And uh, thank you for the listeners uh, for listening to today's episode in which we explored Invoking the Invisible and the Sahara, Islam, Spiritual Mediation, and Social Change, published by Cambridge University Press in 2023. This is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in African Studies.